Welcome to life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationships, and fertility with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. Today, we're back again with Dr. Serena Chin for part two about the COVID vaccine. Welcome to life, love, insight, fertility experiences. And I'm back with Dr. Chin. I am so thrilled you're here for part two. For those of you who didn't listen to part one, Dr. Serena Chin, the director of the Division of Reproductive Medicine at the Institute for Reproductive Medicine and Science, IRMS is the acronym in New Jersey. And she is the director of reproductive OBGYN at St. Barnabas Medical Center. She's a clinical associate professor at Rutgers at UMD and Medical School and St. George University School of Medicine. She is constantly providing a wealth of information. And also last year, she won Resolve's Hope Award for Advocacy, which is something so near and dear and close to so many of our hearts, especially mine. For those of you who don't know what Resolve is, it's like the Academy Awards of Fertility. (laughs) That is like winning like the best picture. (laughs) To sum it up. I like that analogy. I like that. Thank you for coming back on to talk about this and the thousands and thousands of questions that have arisen since just a couple of months ago when we first started talking. Yeah. Right. So many questions. So many questions. We have to remember that this is this is very new for everybody, including uh, including the experts, and they are. I've been very very impressed. I think it's. Um, we're, I feel very lucky that we have the CDC and Dr. Fauci. There are some really amazing people working on fighting the pandemic and developing the vaccines. And I, um, you know, I'm really grateful for that. So there's, I think there's a lot of good news out of that, but you're right. So much new information, even the experts are having trouble keeping up. So how are, how are patients and people who are not healthcare experts, how are they gonna get all their questions answered? That's tough. So hopefully we can answer some of the common questions today. And, yeah. you know, but, but people need to remember that I think, I think the, the big thing is please keep taking, please keep checking the cdc.gov. So cdc.gov is a wonderful site. Physicians use it, but they also have a ton of information that I think is pretty clearly written so that uh, even people who don't have a healthcare background can get their questions answered. And when you go to cdc.gov, you can just type in COVID vaccine or Johnson and Johnson vaccine, or, you know, and they uh, pop all the latest news and information will pop up. You so something you posted something actually that I reposted. And then I think I went on to CDC to pull it because I thought it was so important. And it was kind of like the do's and don'ts of after you get vaccinated. Yes, and yes. such a huge question that people have. And so I thought that that was as clear as it could be at this point in time. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, and that that was big news, but people also then have to worry about their own like local conditions and then, and then people who are working have their own guidelines. So um, it's, it's hard to keep up, but yes, the CDC did say that now that we're vaccinated, they are saying, you know, uh, domestic travel and some gatherings, small gatherings with other people who are vaccinated are reasonable. They had more restrictions around vaccinated people being with unvaccinated people. So it's not a free for all now, 
but they are saying that vaccination, uh, being fully vaccinated, that's two weeks after your second shot or one shot of the J&J would mean that you're quote unquote fully vaccinated. Um, it doesn't mean 100% protection, but it does allow you a little bit more freedom. And that's the important piece to remember. It allows you more freedom, but it's not 100%, but it's pretty close in many yeah. instances. And, and that's the great part. And, you know, I have all these other questions, but since you mentioned J&J, it's just so fortuitous because I had talked to you about doing this before the news broke on J&J. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunate situation and certainly no just this week um they um they the acip the um advisory committee on immunization practices which is part of the cdc met and they decided based upon a few cases of an unusual blood clotting situation to put a pause on the vaccine and um the pause doesn't mean um, a revocation of the emergency use authorization, but they did say, let's just put a pause on giving people the vaccine until we can assess what's going on. And it does seem like it's very, these are very rare complications, but because the complication was an unusual one, so it's a cerebral sinus um, venous thrombosis, uh, so it's a blood clot in the brain and a particular blood vessel in the brain that prevents the blood from draining. So the blood clot in the brain that seems to be immune mediated because at the same time, uh, people that have this blood clot also have low platelets, which is an unusual situation. So it does seem to be similar to something called HIT, heparin induced thrombocytopenia, which is immune mediated and like C cerebral CSVT, cerebral sinus venous thrombosis, it cannot be treated with heparin, which is the normal way to treat blood clots. So it's a very unusual situation. So that was one of the reasons they wanted to pause because it's such an unusual condition that the first instinct is to throw somebody on heparin immediately to try to you know, make them better and yet that could make them worse. So they wanted to big, raise a big alert to the entire healthcare system and to all they physicians. Yeah, saying, you know, this is really unusual and you cannot treat it the way you think you can treat it. So they, they wanted to put that message out there. And then um, even though it's a, it's a very, very low incidence and the risk of having clots from COVID is like, hundreds of times higher than the risk of, of uh, clotting from the vaccine, it's, it's still, it's a higher incidence than they expected in this particular group, young women without any risk factors. So, um, you know, they, they met, I think, I think they met already twice this week and uh, they just, the pause right now is still on. And um, we're going to be waiting, you know, I will be posting, you know, when we hear more, hopefully, uh, about more, more news as they try to, like, get a handle on what's going on. Right. No, well, thank you. And I appreciate that. Because they, on one hand, everybody's saying the number's so low. And then on the other hand, they really want to watch it. So you have to be. Yeah. Now, I think, Lori, they would have, the decision would have been different if they didn't feel so good about the supply for Moderna and Pfizer. 
So obviously we really like the J&J because it's only one shot and it doesn't have to be frozen. Um, it's just much easier to handle than Moderna and Pfizer, but we are doing pretty well with the Moderna and Pfizer, like 3 million you know, vaccines a day. We've already, over a third of the US population has already had at least one shot and about a fourth of the US population has been fully vaccinated. Uh, so it's like 192 million vaccines have been given, only 7 million of the J&J, &J. everything else has been Moderna and Pfizer. And the data on that and the side effects and the complications seem to be what we expect, very low. And um, and so the, the, you know, the, the FDA and the CDC felt like, well, we're in the situation where we have a good alternative for a lot of people. Right. So we're the harm in pausing maybe is not quite as bad as it would be if that were our only choice. I mean, I'm not saying it's harmful. Obviously we are worried about vaccine hesitancy with any kind of news like this, yeah. uh, but that was another factor in their decision, it seems yeah. like. No, I think that, that was smart. I mean, it was a wonderful decision. It's just unfortunately right now, I heard on the news today that there's a lot of people not showing up for vaccines because they're afraid. So it's yeah. the fear is heightened. And and some of the questions that I've been hearing and getting and discussing with people, um, specifically around fertility, but they really relate to everything. But so some of the fertility really questions really are, is it still okay to get vaccinated in your first trimester? And what happens to the fetus? And then what if I want to breastfeed? And all of these questions are coming up. And what if I already delivered and now I want to breastfeed? Can I get the vaccine? So a lot of this is, is really, you know. So many questions. So, um, you know, with the breastfeeding, breastfeeding is really easy. It's messenger RNA there. It just can't get into the breast milk. It's just not physically possible. So, um, you know, the, the pediatricians and the obstetricians and the reproductive endocrinologists and the CDC and the FDA, all our societies, American societies are um, feeling really good about breastfeeding women getting the vaccine. They think that is totally fine. Um, it's, we, it, I think it's gonna remain to be seen like whether um, because of the vaccine response and making the antibodies, are these antibodies gonna be in breast milk? Uh, we are seeing in pregnancy, pregnant women that have been vaccinated uh, early, relatively early in pregnancy actually have really good antibody responses. And the earlier you vaccinate in pregnancy, it seems like you're seeing better vaccine, a better antibody levels in the babies. So mm -hmm. uh, we do think at any point in, the, in your pregnancy, and this is American College of OBGYN, CDC, ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the FDA, ASRM, American Society for Reproductive Medicine, SMFM, Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, all of our societies with all the experts on pregnancy and breastfeeding are really saying, we really want all these people to get vaccinated. We think that you should have the vaccine. And after the J&J &J announcement, ACOG did uh, change their advisory a little bit to say, we agree with the pause on the J&J for women trying to conceive and pregnant and lactating 
but we really still strongly support all the mRNA vaccines at all stages of reproduction. So this is before pregnancy, trying to conceive, during pregnancy for a second and third trimester, and breastfeeding. And it is true, we don't have actual studies where we experimented on pregnant women and put them in a clinical trial and gave half the pregnant women uh, a nothing shot, a placebo shot, and half the pregnant women a real shot. We haven't done those studies, but we do have tens of thousands of people, in fact, more more than the number that were in the original clinical trials have been, pregnant women have been vaccinated. So like well over 50,000 with Moderna and Pfizer. And, you know, so far so good. The data from the vSafe database really looks very similar to the general population, what exactly what you would expect. So, you know, the normal miscarriage rate is one in four. The most recent data that I saw, um, from the CDC um, vSafe data for like the first 50,000 women that were pregnant was about 15% miscarriage rate. So it's definitely not higher um, than, you know, so that's the normal miscarriage rate that we would expect. And then just the physiology, again, messenger RNA going into your muscle, it, it makes your cells um, make proteins but it's not like something is going, you know, into your bloodstream and through the placenta. Those, that's what we worry about. We always worry like with drugs and other things, how does it, can it cross the placenta? And when something doesn't cross the placenta, we definitely worry less about it. We also have a lot of animal data. So we know how this works in animals. And a lot of times when we give warnings to pregnant women about medications, some of that comes from the animal data. So animal data is very useful, even though it doesn't tell you everything, it does give you a lot of useful information. And that data for all the vaccines has actually been very reassuring. This is great. It really is because when we first talked, which was just a couple of months ago, you were saying very clearly that you were comfortable using the messenger RNA, but the, but the live virus, you were saying, well, let's just wait and see. And we're still saying the same thing. We are still saying the same thing. But in the meantime, mm -hmm. we found, I found out that, and this was interesting because like, it, this was not easy to find out, Lori. And I feel like I have, you know, I have a lot of resources. I have so many people I can ask and so many sources for information. And yet it was pretty hard to find out that, the structure of the J&J &J and AstraZeneca vaccines, um, a lot of people thought they were live viruses, but they're actually not, it's not quite a live virus. It is a viral particle mm -hmm. and it can attach to your cells. But so I guess in that way it's alive, but it doesn't actually replicate. So it's not, re, it's like, a. so that's why they call it a viral vector. So that was very confusing. I'm glad you brought that up because I was confused about that before. And, you know, the chickenpox vaccine and the measles vaccine, apparently they are actual viruses because they can replicate themselves. They can reproduce. So you get injected, they reproduce inside your body. And that's part of how they create the immune response. But, uh, but they are very weakened versions of those viruses. 
So very weakened version of measles. If you get sick from the measles vaccine, it's a very, very mild version. And the same thing with the varicella vaccine or the chickenpox vaccine. But this, I thought, you know, and, and a lot of people I asked thought, thought this too. And honestly, a lot of the articles I read were really not so clear. Um, but this, it's like a little viral particle. It's got DNA inside. It attaches to the cell. It in, just like a virus particle, it injects the DNA inside the cell. Then your cell takes up the DNA and just uses it as a template to make the uh, messenger RNA and then the spike protein. And then you have a response to the spike protein and then you have immunity. So that takes like two weeks. Uh, but then those little viral particles that attach to your cells then they then they're done. They can't they they can't do anything more than that. So that is different uh -huh. than chickenpox and measles. What it's very similar to is the Ebola vaccine. Oh, and the, interesting. Yeah. So the Ebola vaccine is it's not exactly the same, but it it uses a similar technology, a kind of not a real virus, a viral vector that can do like, I guess it's like half the life cycle of the virus because it can attach and it can inject the DNA, but then it can't do anything more than that. It cannot replicate itself. And that's why it's not a quote unquote live virus. So if we did not have this pause, mm -hmm. um, you know, before we had this pause, ACOG and ASRM and the CDC and the ACIP all said, this is fine for pregnant women and trying to conceive and lactating. So it is confusing. I, I, I have to say very confusing. And I have to admit that before this came out, I, I kept asking and kept saying, you know, I'm thinking, you know, what are people gonna say about this vaccine? What is the recommendation going to be? Because it seems like it's a live virus. And honestly, I, it took me weeks and weeks and weeks just to get that answer. I just realized I didn't do the screen the right way. I apologize, you know, but I'm just going to change it so I can see you a little bit better. Um, okay. Does I, that make sense? Yes, it does. And I think that it's so important for us to recognize that because, um, you know, thank goodness you had the persistence to pursue this. Yes. Because most so it's, I, I was surprised at how hard it was for me to find that information. Mm -hmm. It wasn't easily accessible. And I'm not um, at all, I'm not surprised at all about how hard it was, but especially for you, because you're there and you've been so involved and working in it quite so much. Thank you for doing that, because I don't know how many people have the, the perseverance to <laughs> like that. And people need to know this. They need to understand it. Yes. The knowledge, it, it decreases the fear. Absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting is people are really upset because the AstraZeneca is a similar technology and they also had to do a pause for a similar type of complication. And ultimately they did release the pause and they just changed the guidelines. So for AstraZeneca, it's um, I think um, people under 30 years old should get, uh, are not getting the AstraZeneca because they're feeling that that's not good, but people over 30, it's safe for them to get. 
And, you know, maybe something like that will happen with the J&J. We really don't know at this point. Um, and what about the children now? Because now they're saying to vaccinate. Some are saying starting at age 12. Some are saying at age 14. So I don't know how that impacts either. It's so Yeah, they're doing trials for, um, for the messenger RNA vaccine, and hopefully that'll be approved soon. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with the J&J. Um, so what happened with AstraZeneca does raise some concerns about J&J. Could they be similar phenomena? They seem to be immune-mediated phenomena. On the other hand, interestingly, the Ebola vaccine really doesn't have these kinds of complications at all, and it does have a similar technology. So there's still there's still a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions. There yeah. is, and then the next question I get from people who are trying to conceive is, well, everybody was vaccinated except me and my nieces and nephews. So what do I do? Can I see them? Should I see them? Should I make them wear a mask when they come to the house? What do I do with them? Yeah, so they are, I think, um, I think we have to look at the CDC guidelines. They are saying you have to be really, you still have to be really, really careful about unvaccinated people and mixing the two um, is not unreasonable under certain, certain circumstances, but they are still recommending social distancing, masking, keeping circles very, very small. So it seemed like what they were recommending was still like a pod-like inner circle type uh, arrangements that you're not just saying, well, I'm vaccinated so I can just run around with everybody who's not vaccinated. It sounded like they're still recommending keeping the circle small, like keeping um, being under control. And we do have to remember that while the vaccines seem to be extremely effective, we don't know how long are these antibodies gonna last. It's nice to say, well, six months out, it looks like the antibody levels are still high. So that means to me, you know, I'm hoping we get to a year, but, or maybe longer, but we don't really know that for sure yet. And then we also are all wondering about the variants. So this breakthrough idea, you know, people are, I know I've, I've gotten a lot of questions about the breakthrough because there was that study that said the South African variant can break through the Pfizer vaccine. And what did that mean? That was um, where they looked at a whole bunch of data and what they found was the, I think the infection rate for people that were vaccinated when they were exposed to the South African variant was higher than um, when when they weren't when they weren't exposed to the South African variant. So it was like a five percent infection rate instead of like a close to zero percent infection rate. So the idea of breakthrough it still doesn't mean like the vaccines are gonna fail. Like if you have a 5% infection rate, that's still much, much, much lower than if you're unvaccinated. Right. So you still are seeing significant effectiveness, but it doesn't seem quite as effective uh, against the South African variant does as maybe seem, the other ones. Does it seem as if you won't get as sick if you've had the vaccine? That's, yeah, a lot of people are saying that as well. A lot of, like, even if you get it, you're, the risk of death is much lower. The risk of severe disease is much lower, which makes sense because you are making these antibodies. So you, you know, even if some of the 
the virus comes through, you're still not getting as much of a load. And we do know that the amount of virus that a person is exposed to does seem to correlate with severity of illness. So that, you know, if you if you get a lot of uh, of a vaccine, uh, I mean, virus exposure, you're, that correlates with a more severe illness. So, which is why, you know, we're seeing, you know, why like healthcare workers and, and people like that can be at risk for severe disease. So um, we are definitely seeing that despite- I didn't know that. That's really interesting. I yes, know. yeah. That, um, and despite the rise of these variants, the vaccine is, is making a huge difference. And they're a direct um, weapon against mutation because mutation happens every time the virus infects another person. And the more people that it infects, the greater the ability to mutate. So if we can just you know, lower the infection rate, if everybody gets vaccinated and, it, and the virus can only affect, uh, infect a small number of people, the mutation rate will then drop as well. So um, we really, you know, like every person that gets a vaccine is essentially, you know, a soldier in the war against, against the pandemic. So, um, you know, I go and volunteer all the time and I'm always like, thank you for coming in and getting vaccinated because, you know, it really does make a difference. So what would you recommend for people who are apprehensive and they're not sure what to do? I understand people who are ill with terminal illness or certain kinds of conditions being concerned about getting the vaccine. You know, their doctors might be a little bit apprehensive. Some people I understand with um, immune compromised conditions may not be getting the vaccine. But for most of the population, the general population, where there's this concern about getting the vaccine, and I find myself trying to recommend that they not go down these rabbit holes on blogs and on videos and all of these other things, but please look at the experts, look at the information. And it was funny, I reached out to you because I received a phone call from Bloomberg News. And I said, I'm, you know, and I did all this information and all this study, and I did not realize until the article came out that it was about Facebook and about misinformation being oh, out wow. on Facebook. And they didn't tell me that when they interviewed me for the article. Mm-hmm. And um, the article came out and it, that's what it was about. But really what they were asking me about was what does it do to people when they get all this misinformation or they get like such contrary information? How does it impact them? Yeah. Yeah. How does it impact them? And it leads to anxiety. And we're already anxious enough because most of us haven't had a normal routine in over a year. And we're all, you know, have, not all of us, but quite a few of us have some low-lying depression because we haven't had our routine and we haven't been out and we haven't seen people we love. And so now we go down a rabbit hole of information. So to get the word out, to not go down a rabbit hole, but to look to the experts, I think is so important. And I'm not sure how to even foster that even more. And that's why I was so glad that you came on today because I just want to be able to share as much accurate information that's research-based as possible. Well, I think, Lori, what you're doing to just try to, you know, talk to people and doing your podcasts and doing interviews, I feel like that, you know, all healthcare workers, you know, I think all of us feel like this is what we should be doing. We, you know, the more we talk to people, um, I think that's, 
helpful. I do think they're, uh, I'm really pleased with a lot of the information that the CDC is putting out. I find that a great resource, so cdc.gov. And you can just kind of, just like Google, you can just type your questions in and they, they're really, I think, doing a nice job of answering a lot of these super common questions. And then for, um, for our patients, all our reproductive age women and men who are thinking about getting pregnant or going through fertility therapy or pregnant or breastfeeding, I do think ACOG.org and ASRM.org have been putting out a lot of good content on their websites and on their social media and things like that. And, hope, and you and I are gonna keep doing that as well. Um, but I do think it's good to talk to multiple sources, to read articles and, and to talk to your physician because I, I do think that um, you know your physician knows you best and knows your individual situation. And ultimately each person has to decide for themselves yeah. weighing the pros and the cons and they have to feel comfortable. So even though I say, okay, it's fine, there uh, to take it, I'm comfortable with you taking the vaccine in the first trimester. If you're not comfortable, you can't really do that. And I have a lot of patients, I'm really proud of my patients because I feel like a lot of them are really being really thoughtful about it and, and, and asking me very thoughtful questions and reading articles and then doing an equation like saying, you know, Dr. Chen, I just, I just can't get comfortable with the first trimester and I am going to be, I'm going to be really good. I'm not going to take any trips. I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to break out of my little pod and I'm going to wear my mask. I'm just, you know, I'm tired of the pandemic, but this is really important. I'm going to follow all those guidelines because right now I just don't feel comfortable getting vaccinated. And then you know, when I get into the second trimester, I'm going to get vaccinated. And, and you can see why, you know, like, especially our recurrent miscarriage patients, you know, like our recurrent miscarriage patients, they're not going to, they're not going to do anything, you know, they, because of everything they've been through. And, and I don't think that's unreasonable, but I, but I appreciate that they are taking the time to have a conversation with me mm -hmm. and to really look at the information and really try to weigh the pros and the cons, which is exactly what all the healthcare experts are trying to do on a public health level, you know, like with the J&J &J vaccine and with emergency use authorization for Moderna and Pfizer and updating, you know, in the CDC updated guidelines that you can domestic travel, um, you know, if you really need to now, it seems much more reasonable if you're vaccinated. This is, these are all you know, risk benefit equations. And I don't think they're easy. You know, we have to make the decisions. And when you're going through reproductive, um, you know, journeys, then you know, you're constantly making decisions. Constantly, exactly. And decision that's in your control. And so to have control while you're on a fertility journey is, is really a very good thing. So you can definitely make that decision yourself. I had shared with you that I have some doctors telling patients that, you know, they shouldn't get it. And I am at sometimes I, I know that I'm not asking you for your opinion on this one, but, um, but it's sometimes I'm floored by that because of what all the research is showing. And so yeah, because our experts are all, you know, that our societies are all strongly recommending it. And, you know, so that's where sometimes getting multiple sources 
yeah. information can be helpful, right? I think so. And I think also if you're talking to your doctor, that you should make sure that your doctor is also comfortable having the conversation with you. Because that's true. Yes, that's true. Part of going on a fertility journey is being able to have a relationship with the people who are taking care of you where they can have this kind of a conversation and, and dialogue. And so, you know, I would encourage everybody to be really comfortable with that. And Lori, I also think that honestly, with every big decision, when you're weighing the pros and the cons, I, I mean, I've always encouraged people to seek out help from their mental health professional. You are not a virologist, but you are an expert in helping people make decisions because you help people figure out their own feelings and the things that are weighing on that decision. You help them pull those things apart and hopefully put it back together again. So I do think, you know, right? I think it's important. And I always encourage people that when they're going through fertility journeys to try and seek out somebody who knows about fertility, because many times when you're going through fertility journeys, your feelings can seem to some people exaggerated because right. this is a hard journey to go through. And then to add COVID to the mix. And then should your partner yeah. get vaccinated, if you're not vaccinated, there's, there's just a wealth of information that, you know, you're kind of hungry for. Yeah. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this again, to take that extra step of knowing like point blank. Yes. Breastfeeding is fine. I mean, everybody yeah. said it point, you know, yes, it's okay to get vaccinated in your first trimester and at any point in time, but you have to make that decision and you have to be comfortable. And, you know, when you're using the different vaccines to understand the difference. So there is um, a small point from the latest ASRM guidelines. They suggested that because a lot of people get fevers from these vaccines that you try to, that you try to have at least three days between a vaccine and a procedure because a lot of us do our egg retrievals and our embryo transfers at outpatient centers. Like in New Jersey, we're regulated by law. We have to do screening. And a lot of times, a lot of, a lot of these procedures can be canceled for fevers. So getting a vaccine close to a procedure, any kind of surgical procedure can really confuse the picture because most likely it's just, you know, fever from the vaccine, but because of these screening procedures, sometimes that can really throw off the surgery center. So that was one other suggestion they made. It's not because they feel like the vaccine is going to harm your chances at the egg retrieval or the embryo transfer, but they did say because of normal screening procedures for those kinds of procedures, it's three days is helpful because then you're not confusing the picture with possible vaccine side effects. That's great to know because I think there'd be confusion along those lines in terms of yes. whether to get it or not. And the other question I have that just came to mind is a lot of women will say, well, I'm not supposed to get a fever in the first trimester, or I'm supposed to do everything to avoid getting a fever in the first trimester. Yeah. And ASRM really, they, they came out and said, you know, women that are on prenatal vitamins and folic acid, the, the fever impact is, is not as severe. And they also said, 
drink a lot of water, take some Tylenol. It, they are not concerned about that. So they, they really came out very clearly that they are, they're really not worried about vaccine fever and the first trimester. They feel like it's fine to just drink plenty of water, take some Tylenol, get some rest, keep taking your vitamins. Uh, they did not feel like that would be a reason not to take the vaccine. Um, the interesting other thing is that the CDC also says specifically, uh, don't take your Tylenol before the vaccine. A lot of people are asking, you know, ask me, should I take, you know, I heard I'm going to be really sore. I'm going to have a headache. I'm going to have a fever. Should I take, um, you know, Tylenol before I get the vaccine? And actually the CDC specifically says, don't, don't take it before, just see how you feel. And if you get a fever, you know, then it's fine to take it after, but you know, they don't actually recommend taking it before the vaccine. Well, thank you. Thank you again so much. Oh my gosh. We could talk forever, right? This is crazy. So yeah. much to talk about. I know. <laughs> we could talk to you forever. Thank <laughs> you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's so important. And what you do is so important. So thank you. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how can they reach out to you? So um, at Dr. Serena H. Chen on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So Dr. Serena, S-E-R-E-N-A, H for high maintenance, Chen, C-H-E-N. But hopefully, Lori, you'll put that in your little notes. I will. I will. Yeah. Yes. And please follow her because she's she is so much fun to follow. And on top of so much fun, there is so much information that you are one of my favorite people to follow. Thank you so much, Lori. Thanks for Thank having you. me. Thank you so much. If anybody has any questions or comments, please reach out to me at laurimetz.net.